have, uh, I have 907. Bulletin says we start at 9. So. <laughs> That's right. take, take charge. Take charge. Uh, good morning. Uh, when I first got here, I just mentioned to Stephen and Andy that, uh, I mean, there were like three of us here, and I thought that's what happens when Andy pre-announces who's going to be teaching the next two weeks. And <clears throat> but not to worry. Um, in uh, Benjamin Franklin wrote an autobiography, and it stops abruptly in uh, 1758. And he, he lived until 1790. But it, it mid-sentence, and uh, he, it stops just suddenly, literally, it stops in mid-sentence. And nobody really knows why. I have a lot of material, and I may run out of time. So this morning, if I stop in mid-sentence and go sit down, you will know <laughs> that, that there, I got issues going on up here, okay? Yeah, there you go. Well, I mean, good company, exactly. Um, the last time I was up here in teaching um, was October, and I went over a good deal about what John Calvin called alien righteousness, if you recall that. Uh, I covered a whole lot. Um, a righteousness that comes from, from outside of ourselves. And with Andy and in our study of Romans, we've been going over this. Um, and it, it, it begs the question, what is our justification? Where does our righteousness come from? And as we've discussed before, it is an, an imputed righteousness not infused into us as we do good works as, as Catholicism teaches, but a righteousness that is credited to me, accounted to me, deriving from another source and not from me or resulting from anything that I have done or even intend to do. It comes to me as a free gift of God. The moment I am redeemed by God and you are redeemed by God and enter into his elect family, he sees me as righteous based on what Christ has done. God imputes the righteousness of Christ to me. Does this mean that God ignores my sin? No, no, absolutely not. It means that at the moment of salvation, I am deemed righteous in God's sight based on what his perfect son has done on my behalf. In some cosmic accounting way, outside of me and my full understanding, God the Father takes my sin and imputes it to his son, Jesus Christ. At that same instant, God the Father takes the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ, and imputes that to me. All this happens as a free exchange between the Father and Son through the Holy Spirit. And I have nothing to do with it except to reckon, I love that word, reckon that to be true to me. Because I can't prove this. I have to just reckon it by faith. It's an accounting term. You could use reckon or accounted to or credited to. All would carry the same idea. The reformers simply use the term impute to further distinguish Christianity from all other religions, including Catholicism, which whom that, that they were at battle with. Impute is a transitive verb. It means to lay the responsibility or blame for something often falsely or unjustly. In the case of salvation and imputation of righteousness, the sin I am guilty of and should otherwise be accountable and responsible for, the Father lays on his innocent Son, Jesus Christ. 
Impute also means to credit or to ascribe something to a person or a cause. Infuse, on the other hand, has a totally different meaning. Merriam-Webster, to cause to be permeated with something such as a principle or quality that alters for the better. In this case, it is something poured into me that makes me better and better. The more infusion, the better I become. This is simply not a biblical concept, and I cannot find it anywhere in Scripture. These two words are in conflict with one another when used to describe how we are made righteous in God's sight. Again, in the case of salvation, imputation of sin and guilt, God the Father credits or ascribes my sin to another person, Jesus. I don't fully understand this. I can certainly reflect back as I think back. I was, believe it or not, I was, a, I was an accountant for a brief period of time in IBM. Uh, yeah, about, yeah among, among a lot of other things they had me doing. I can see the accounting terminology. I can picture the ledger in heaven, if you will. Okay, I can understand the academics of it. I could even write it out on a ledger book. My life minus sin on one side, Christ's life plus sin on the other. Another ledger page or line item would be my, my life plus righteousness on one side, Christ's life minus righteousness on the other. I can picture that, but it still does not work. Christ is never not righteous. You follow Christ is never not righteous. So the ledger would not work once it rolls up to what's called a top sheet or to the, to the balance sheet, if you will, meaning it all has to add up when it comes time to reconcile. Corinthians tells us we're, we're be reconciled to God. So there's a reconciliation taking place here. But since just because Christ's righteousness is imputed to me, he never depletes in righteousness. I want you to understand that because where we're headed with this when God imputes righteousness to me, he does not take it from Christ, making Christ less righteous. He reckons that to be so. Okay. He ascribes Christ's righteousness to me from the eternally full bounty of the riches of Christ Jesus. This is in conflict with Catholicism and a lot of other religions, but especially Catholicism, which sees this as a, sees this as a true accounting term or a true accounting transaction, they use terms like treasury of merit. Lest God somehow run out of righteousness to give me through infusing it into me, picturing an IV bottle nearing empty, I must supplement my own righteousness. I.e., that is to say, I gain it through works or penance or indulgences. I can pay money and I can, I can buy righteousness from that treasury of merit that saints, much better than I am, have deposited. They had more righteousness than they need, therefore they are in heaven. <clears throat> so that excess righteousness goes in the treasure of merit and I'm able to secure that from them. My righteousness, my very salvation, is then no longer a free gift, but something I am earning. All religions are this way. I went through, took you through 30 minutes of that back in, in October. All religions are this way. All are works-based at one level or another. And we covered that again back in October. Now, though I can picture this double imputation, <clears throat> and you say, wait, Jeff, you, uh, you threw in a new term. It may be new term, a new term to you, double imputation. Uh, what do you mean? Again, back to the reformers who use this terminology to describe the imputation of, of my sin to Christ, imputation one, if you will, and Christ's righteousness to me, imputation two, if you will. 
thus double imputation. It's also called, termed in science. You may have heard it as the great exchange, but it's double imputation. Now, even though I can picture this in my head and in, and, and in some human way, I could write it out as a counting methodology. It still goes beyond our thinking, at least for me. You might have it all clear in your head, but it's not for me. We are not dealing with dollars and cents and anything finite. We are, not de we, we are dealing with my sin, which is infinite. And even though I thought, well, I've lived a perfect life so far this morning, the fact that I just said I've lived a perfect life so far this morning excludes me from heaven, okay? Because that's not true. I don't even, my, even my thoughts that I'm not even cognizant of, as strange as it may seem. We're dealing with my sin, and not just the actual sins of commission and omission I've created, but the sin of Adam as well. In sin did my mother conceive me. In the womb I was already wrong, okay? Even though I was intricately and wonderfully formed in the womb I was already wrong. I was, sin was already inherent in me. I was a sinner in the womb, inheriting it from Adam. No amount of creative accounting can make that go away. From an accounting perspective, from a bank audit perspective, if you will, I am bankrupt. I'm broke. I am so far in the red, I can never sell my way out, to use a, a, an old sales term. I can't sell my way out. I can't buy my way out of it, and I can't borrow my way out of it. You see, the commodity is not silver or gold or worldly goods or possessions of any sort. The commodity is sin. Andy said a few weeks ago, all you bring to your salvation is your sin. That's the only thing you have to offer anyone. All I can do is earn more sin to my account. I can never reconcile the balance sheet. My liabilities, if you will, will always exceed my assets. That's why I am liable for my sin and have nothing, no assets to offer God to try to bargain my way out of hell and into heaven. The wages I earn for my sin, we call them works, is what? Death. My only hope is for someone from the outside, someone not accountable to me or anyone else to reconcile my account. My sin has to be paid for, and I cannot do it. That I understand, but I do not fully understand how God the Father could allow his son to voluntarily step in and pay the debt for me. Christ alone reconciles my, reconciles my account to God. I owe a debt that I can never pay. Christ in his eternal and inexhaustible bounty comes to the closing table, if you will, and wipes my slate clean. All, all he has is imputed to my account, and the ledger balances all I had, my works, my sin, my debt, is imputed to Christ. As I said at the beginning, this occurs in some alien, John Calvin called it an alien righteousness, some alien, foreign, cosmic way that I cannot grasp. I only know that by faith, I believe it all to be true. Simply stated, I do not understand. I got this from a quick story many, many years ago, a friend of mine, who was a physician, he and his wife were in Chattanooga and they were staying in a hotel and the wife was talking to the maid. And they were Christians and talking to the maid and the maid said, yes, my husband is from Africa, Uganda, here at college. And they were at uh, Covenant up in uh, Chattanooga. And uh, so we, had, we invited him down and he came to our church, came to our home. His name was Sunday Joseph, I love that name. Uh, but he, this was in the days of Idi Amin in Uganda. 
And a quick story, he didn't, his parents were, they had been killed uh, by uh, Idi Amin. He had lived a long, survived in the bush. His aunt and uncle was able to, were able to rescue him and bring him back, get to safety. The Idi Amin, of course, he was, he was uh, overthrown. And Sunday Joseph was able to come up here and preach. I do remember a story where one of the elders, Idi Amin, came in and they took the elders and dragged them out of the church. And they refused to renounce, told to renounce Christ. <clears throat> and he wouldn't. So they cut off one hand. Sunday Joseph saw this. And he still wouldn't. They cut off his other hand. That, that's, a, that's a true story relayed to me from, from a young fellow who actually saw that. So I, I say all that to say that this, I got this quick little quip, if you will, from Sunday Joseph. He said, I do not understand how a brown cow eats green grass and delivers white milk, but I know it's true. That's very simply put, but there's a, there's a, there's a level of confusion there, and yet we know it to be true. I can't explain all of that. Reflect back on all Andy has covered over the months, and Jeff Tank as well has covered many of these terms like concepts and words like faith, righteousness, justification, sanctification, imputation, and others that we use. These all relate to Christian doctrine, what we believe and stand for, what Christians have stood for and died for since Stephen, the first martyr. I just said that what I believe is a matter of faith, even if I cannot explain it exactly or understand it perfectly, although I tried to take you through a level of understanding from a human perspective. What is, the question now is what is faith and what kind of faith are we to have and what is the object of our faith? With all this as a way of introduction, you say, wow, that's a long introduction. I'll ask you a question. Who is Abraham? He was a patriarch. He was the first patriarch. He was the father of the Jews, the father of faith, the father of many nations. There's a lot of terminology, terms uh, assigned to him. He was God's friend in James 2.24. Several terms and titles we find in the Bible. In fact, Abraham is mentioned 235 times in the Bible. Include his original name, Abram, and it's around 292 times. So let's just round up to 300 times in the Bible. He is mentioned 72 times in the New Testament, more than any other Old Testament person except Moses. So he is up there in good company. Abraham is first mentioned in Genesis 11:26 as Abram. He's referred to as Abram until Genesis 17:5, when God changes his name to Abraham. And he is mentioned there and on throughout the Bible. <clears throat> it's interesting that when we first meet Abram in 11:26, he's already 75 years old. And his death is recorded in Genesis 25.8. Paul mentions him in Romans nine times. He mentions him again in 1 Corinthians one time and in Galatians nine times. Luke, a close friend and fellow traveler, if you will, in, the, in, in, in ministry uh, of Paul, mentions him 14 times in Luke and another eight times in Acts. John mentions him nine times, quoting Jesus, all in chapter 8 of John. Paul's use of Abraham 19 times is in building his doctrinal case for a Christian justification coming by faith from a source outside of himself. It's a most powerful use of another man's life, not quoting the man himself. Abraham never identified himself as, as righteous. Or, docu or documenting the quotes of someone else. Paul uses Abraham directly as the father of faith to build his case, his apologia, if you want, regarding the Christian faith and what it is. 
Given that Abram slash Abraham is mentioned almost 300 times in the Bible, uh, I would think that we would think he is important. Would you not? I mean, just the number of times you hear his name. The repetition of his name and even life well past his death tells us we should know as much about the man as we can. Our faith is literally built on his character and his belief in God and in things not yet seen. We're familiar in the verse with, in Romans 4.3. Are, are we all the way in 4.3 yet or we, we move around? Okay, well, I'm, I'm going to jump ahead even though we're not there yet. But you're familiar with Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. It was accounted. It was credited. It was reckoned. It was ascribed to him. Okay. It was imputed to him. Okay. Is Paul just using this as an example of Abraham as he, as he was adding this in at Romans 4 showing faith? Yes and no. This is one time in Romans of the nine times Paul uses the name, but you can probably see in your Bible the reference back to Genesis 15, 6, where we read, He, Abram, believed God, the, uh, believed God and he counted it to him for righteousness. So it's not, Romans 4, 3 is not the first time we see this. God through Moses, who wrote Genesis, says, this is the way back in Genesis. It was, Abram was righteous then. He was deemed righteous even then. The first he, lowercase is Abram, the second he, the uppercase is God, the Lord Yahweh. Note that Abram never says, actually says, I believe. The reading is such that God knows Abram believes him. It's God that gives Abram the faith to believe, and God knows that Abram truly believes, and in this verse we see God deeming Abram as righteous because of his belief, not anything he has done. So I'm, I hope you can kind of see now how the balance sheet is kind of moving back and forth here. God, God, God is taking his righteousness and ascribing it to Abraham. Abraham has done nothing. So we first see Abraham in, 11, in chapter 11. This is three chapters from Noah's exit from the ark in chapter 8. Two chapters from the Noahic covenant, the rainbow in chapter 9. Then the sin of Noah's son Ham in 9, 20, and 24. Genesis 10, we read nations descended from Noah, including Nimrod. See, especially Genesis 10, 32, where the families, nations of Noah, and, quote, from these the nations were divided on the earth after the flood showing us how God distributed people and nations throughout the earth he had created. We read about the Tower of Babel in chapter 11, and Abram is introduced to us through his father Terah, T-E-R-A-H, in 1127. This is very far back in history. To put it simply, a long, long time ago. Uh, you should know by now that Abram plays an important role in the Christian faith. I mean, you can't, it's almost like you can't get, there, get here without him. He is one of the most important figures in the Bible apart from Jesus. It is through his lineage that the Savior of the world comes, according to Matthew and in Luke 3, Matthew 1 and Luke 3. No one can understand the Old Testament, so do not dare unhitch. No one can understand the Old Testament without understanding Abraham, for in many ways the story of redemption begins with God's call to this patriarch. Abraham was the first man chosen by God for a role in the plan of redemption. The story of Abraham contains the first mention in the Bible of God's righteousness assigned to man as the sole means of salvation in Genesis 15, 6. It was, a, it was accounted, ascribed to him, imputed to him as righteousness, his belief. It was Abraham who God chose to be the father of many nations simply because it was God's will to do so. 
God knew that Abraham would struggle with the call set before him, and he did. He was a sinful man. We'll cover some of that. But he also knew that his struggle would produce great growth and faith. I mentioned that Genesis 15, 6, and in Romans 4, 3, that Abraham believed God, which made him righteous. How? What kind of belief must it take that far back into antiquity? We didn't have the cross. There was no Jewish religion. religion. There were no Jews. There were no Hebrews. There was no cross. There was no blood sacrifice. There was no reconciliation between God and man. Nothing documented. What was the object of Abraham's faith? I wondered that and meditated on it, I meditated on it as I was working on the lesson. I said, well, how did... How did Abraham come to all of this? Just what was Abraham thinking and believing? Could I ever have such faith with so little to go on? Given we, we meet Abraham when he was 75, I think, what happened when he was a child? Do we know? Prior to 75, there's little known of his birth and early life. Genesis 11:28 tells us that the family native land was Ur of the Chaldees. Abraham, Grady and I were talking about this uh, as we in the driveway uh, Friday. Um, Genesis 11, uh, I mean, in Abraham, first known as Abram, was born the son of Terah, who lived near the southern Mesopotamian city called Ur of the Chaldees. This city is in modern-day Iraq. We'll just, let's just say, rather than trying to cover all of Iraq, we'll just say Babylon is as good a place as any. The city is located in modern-day Iraq, worshipped a moon god called Sin. They worshipped many gods, but uh, Sin, S-I-N, interesting that that's the name of their moon god. Abram went north because God had a plan for eternity that included this man and didn't include worshipping pagan gods. So that's kind of the history. That's where Abraham came from. The fact that one day of all of his 175 years, Abram heard God call out to him is, is really more than amazing given his pagan upbringing for 75 years. The idea that God told him to, quote, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land I will show you in Genesis 12:1 demonstrates a relationship of trust or at least knowledge of God before his time. God had said, and Abraham, Abram believed it. Abram had a simple faith in who he understood to be the God of all gods. The Bible is relatively silent on the first few decades of Abraham's life, telling us that he was the son of Terah and the husband of Sarah, but not much else. Sarah, actually. I sometimes find checking Jewish history, if you've been in, those in my community group know that I, I will go to no ends for researching stuff and try to figure out a little bit more if I possibly can. I sometimes find checking Jewish history and oral tradition. I, I did some research in the Midrash and the Talmud, uh, Jewish writings outside of the Old Testament. Let me read how Abram's move away from the pagan gods of Mesopotamia and toward a one true God happened. Here is how it is summed up, summed up by Maimonides. Got to get my... And it's written. And again, this is Jewish oral history documented in the Midrash. After this mighty man, Abraham was weaned he began to explore and think, how was it possible for the sphere to continue to revolve without having anyone controlling it? Who is causing it to revolve? Surely it does not cause itself to revolve. He had no teacher, nor was there anyone to inform him. He realized that there was one God. If you read it, it they, don't, they don't spell out the word God, so you see God-D. 
there was one God who controlled the sphere, that he created everything, and that there is no other God among all the other entities. Abraham was 40 years old when he became aware of his creator. We don't know this to be a fact, okay, but I'm just giving you this, a, a Jewish perspective. When he recognized and knew him, he began to formulate replies to the, inhabitants, uh, to the inhabitants of Ur, where he lived, and debate with them, telling them that they were not following a proper path. He broke their idols and began to teach the people that it is fitting to serve only the God of the world. When he overcame them through the strength of his arguments, the king, Nimrod, desired to kill him. He was saved by a miracle and left for um, the... Uh, Cain and it's, it's Charon here but we know it is Cain there he began to call out in a loud voice to all people and inform them that there is one God in the entire world and it is proper to serve him now I cannot say how exactly true that is but from a Jewish tradition perspective it does help me to come to two th conclude two things one God knows everything about everybody in his sovereign election he has predetermined who will and who will not believe and serve him he chooses who he will to use in working out his predetermined plan of redemption. Number two, this Jewish narrative does align with what Paul tells us in Romans 1, 19 through 20. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So even if I look back at what uh, we could even call it perhaps an unreliable Jewish tradition documented for us, it, their thinking does align that the Jews said, the Jewish fathers say, Abram looked around and said, how did this all come to be? And I think he came to the conclusion that I, I'm without excuse. There's something other than these pagan gods. There's something beyond me. I didn't cause this. So it flies in the face of evolution, it flies in the face of uh, self-help, it flies in the face of works-based religions. He just simply humbled himself and said there's one true God. He may not have fully known who it was yet. You can jump ahead to Paul where he says, um, uh, uh, he said, you know, the, here's, I see you've got a, a statue, an idol to the unknown God. And then he begins to proceed using their own poem some of their own poets to ex better explain to them this one true God. Paul wrote this well after Abraham's death, this, this passage in uh, Romans 1, 19, 20. But it's the truth of God and just as true in Abraham's day as it was in Paul's day and as it is in our day. Man is without excuse. And it, that, that, that includes Abraham. Don't think there's anything special about it. He was, he was still without excuse. Abraham looked at creation. There were pagan gods being worshipped and they did not answer the question, who made all this? Who controls all this? Is there a sovereign over all of this? I think there was a yearning for the truth and God knew Abraham was looking for it. Abraham could not deny there was something outside of himself. God in his sovereignty and according to nothing more than his own good pleasure speaks to Abram in Genesis 12.1. Then in verse 4 we read, So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him. Here we see the first nugget of true faith, of saving faith. I believe based on this and other evidences later in Genesis, God counted this faith of Abram as righteousness. A quick aside, if I may. Yeah, I'll go ahead and cover it. Just as we saw sin come right back into people's heart and society in general, with Noah getting drunk in Genesis 9:20 and his son Ham sinning, probably sexually in some way with his own father. They had just gotten off the boat, so to speak, after every person had been drowned and they still could not control themselves. 
Noah evidently had a weakness for wine. He went to the trouble to plant a vineyard. And Genesis tells, but, and yet, Genesis 6, 9 tells us that Noah walked with God. So in spite of our sin, God in his sovereignty, in nothing but his own goodwill and love, he chooses to reach down to some people and save them. And the Bible claims that Noah walked with God in spite of the, the, the amount of sin that was, that was in his heart. We see that God looks into the heart of man, not on the outside. Noah had proved that he, like Abraham, believed God as he spent 120 years building the ark in obedience to some very strange and mysterious direction from God. Read, read back through that. Though not stated in Genesis directly, we do read in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, verse 7, that by faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. You see the point that Noah, God spoke to Noah, and he believed God, even though he did not fully understand. Just as I explained sort of in detail the accounting terms, I don't fully understand it. Noah didn't fully understand why an ark, it never rained. What is this all about? But he did it anyway, and that's what's counted to him. He believed God. Noah's righteousness and friendship with God was based on his faith and not on building of the ark. Ark building was an outgrowth of that faith and not the cause of it. He was saved by faith and not by works, as we read in uh, Romans 6. Same in the Old Testament as in the New Testament, and same for you and me. Looking back again at Genesis 12:1, we see God told Abram to just pack up and start walking. I've always found this really phenomenal. It would be hard for me to do, even though I was moved around a lot when, when I was working and things like that. And you kind of say, okay, we're going to send you here. I had the option to say, no, I don't think I want to do that. Um, Abram just, God told Abram to pack up and move, and he, he got up. Showing the sovereignty of God, and he saves whom he will, and he blesses them, those whom he will bless, not always because of their obedience, but in godly countermeasure to their disobedience very often. It's reassuring that, um, that even in spite of Abraham's, Abram's pagan upbringing, Noah's sin, they still are found righteous. They still walked with God. And in spite of their disobedience, and as I say, almost a countermeasure, God saves them almost in spite of their disobedience. That's reassuring and scary to me at the same time. So that's why, just another reason as I think and meditate on what God does with these people and with us, there's a, there's a, there's a level of awe and reverence before him that, that, that even I can't, I can't fully understand or, or comprehend, but I know that there's something powerful that I serve even though I don't, he'll, I'll never under, there's, still, there's a mystery there that I cannot explain. Back to Abraham in Genesis 12, God told Abraham to, quote, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. And it, the reading is simply that he just got up and left. Note here, Abraham was told to get out and, quote, from your family. Yet in verse 4, what do we read? We read, he did leave his father, but his nephew Lot went with him. I mean, think about that just a minute. How obedient was he? Was he fully obedient? I would, I would, I would submit no. <laughs> they took his family with him. I mean, he took, he said, leave your family. He took Lot. Now, when, when God says leave your family, it doesn't mean your wife, Sarai. But you do pack up, and he 
took Lot with him. I'm seeing disobedience here, perhaps not blatant, but this comment, and Lot went with him, is here for a reason. I just think it interesting, consider as you study Abraham, or Abram, a consideration for your time in meditation. Think, think through that. Uh, should he have taken Lot, especially if you read all the other stuff about Lot? For me, I see it that even though when I do not fully understand God's direction for me, Perhaps the Holy Spirit reveals only the big picture and fills in the blanks and details later as I continue to obey. God's commands and direction and my response to that is part of my progressive sanctification to bring it up into the New Testament. Just some food for thought. That, I just put that out there. In this line of thinking in Scripture, though, let me jump a bit ahead with Abram to Genesis 12.10. We read, there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt. Further, we read Sarai was not just beautiful, but very beautiful. Another aside, I, I love to read in Scripture how God describes physical characteristics of some people, left, left-handed and fat, bald, uh, beautiful. Uh, one word, I don't, I don't ever see him describing anyone as physically ugly. Now, there were, I'm sure there were probably a lot of ugly people, in there, uh, but he never describes anyone as physically ugly. He just simply brushes that over. There was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt. Further, we read Sarah was not just beautiful, very beautiful in verse 14. Abram in, Abram, in fear for his life, you can read the story, had his wife lie for him as they went down to Egypt because she was very beautiful. And he said, he said just tell me you're my sister. And he, they, she was his half-sister, which, which was not uncommon back then. Um, he, so he, he lied, Abram lied, and he got his wife to lie for him. Here again, we see a righteous man, Abram, sort of obeying God in 12.5. Now we see this righteous man lying and getting his wife to do the same. I'm starting to see a pattern of depravity here, uh, signs of a heart that is deceitful and desperately wicked, uh, as we read in Jeremiah 17.9. Yet he is called righteous in spite of this, in spite of his life, in spite of his disobedience, in spite of his behavior, in spite of his works, if you will. Look at Genesis 13.1. Abram leaves Egypt, and Lot is still with him. They have certainly accumulated a lot of wealth. Um, and then we see in verse 17, we see strife between the herdsmen and servants of Abram and Lot. The part of chapter 13 I want you to focus in on is verse 8, where Abram pleads with his nephew Lot to please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brethren. Verse 7 states the strife was between their herdsmen. Abram expands this to not just the herdsmen, the outside world, if you will, but Abram's plea for peace is between the brethren. Uh, Abram is showing a righteousness that, in that righteous people pursue peace. Uh, he desires peace, especially among his brothers, his fellow believers, if you will. He is... Um, He's influenced less by what is happening among the herdsmen outside of his immediate family, the brethren, if you will, and more concerned about how the worldly turmoil could affect the relationship among the brethren. We're told somewhat the same thing in the New Testament, live in peace. 1 Thessalonians 5 to 13, and be at peace among yourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, be complete, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace. Hebrews 12, 4, pursue peace with all people. Now, to get, try to get, encapsulate this as I thought through that, I was trying to jump from Abram and pursuing peace with Lot. I was trying to jump up to the New Testament and see how I could 
link those two together. I thought I did a good job, but I went to John David after I'd seen your note for help, Andy. <laughs> I had already gone to John David. I had to go to John David for help and confirmation on this part of my lesson. Uh, he helped me. Abram does use the word peace and brethren, and we read these same words in the New Testament. And I, as I tried to make this appeal to brothers, I lost sight of how righteous people are to act. I could see a similarity in this Genesis patches about Abram and the New Testament patches about brothers leaving in peace, but I could not link them with John David's help. I now have a better grasp of how these passages relate. So anytime I've stumped on something and, 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 and not, I, I think I got the passage of Scripture pretty good in hand and in my mind, and I, I write it out, and I think, that's pretty good, yeah. And then I read it loud back to myself. I'll read it out loud, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm just not so sure about that. The Holy Spirit just said, Jeff, you just, you know, don't go, just, this is not right. So I go to a, uh, I go to somebody like John David, you know, an older, wiser, taller man. And uh, actually, I, I did get good help from him. Let me quote John David as he came back to me. He said, I think the New Testament passages and this passage with Abraham are pointing to a central theme of the righteous. That is that righteous, righteous pursue, the righteous pursue peace. That is the reason for the similarities in what is taking place, not the use of the word brother and brethren. So, and I say all that not to say, gee, Jeff, do you really know what you're doing? But to say, none of us really do, that the scriptures are so inexhaustible that even when you think you've got a handle on on it, on it, words, words, words are the skin of an idea. You put enough words together, you have to peel the words apart. That's why, you know, word study is very important. And as I'd study the words, I lost sight of that. So, it's it's a, it's kind of both and. It's yes, pursue peace, but it's also the uh, the the effort to avoid disputing and strife. Okay, enough of that. If I wanted to give you a takeaway from this regarding righteous Abraham in the Old Testament, peaceful brethren in the New Testament, it's it is that all of us should pursue peace. Um, again, the righteous pursuit peace. Um, let me give you a, a, some counters to that that are sort of like, okay, pursuing peace versus avoiding conflict, avoiding dispute, avoiding strife. Psalm 34, 14, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. Proverbs 15, 18, a wrathful man stirs up strife but he who is slow to anger allays or assuages contention. Or another way to say it is calms a dispute. Proverbs 20, verse 3, It is honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. To sum up the righteousness of Abram his own display is he is doing the very things we later read in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, pursuing peace by avoiding strife, disputes, and arguing. I just thought that's kind of a little aside about Abraham and another reason why God could see him righteous. Now that you kind of take this, I gave you a little, a little bit different view to see him, uh, you can see how God could see him as righteous. Okay, I'm going to stretch the thought a little bit further and suggest that just as there was strife among the herdsmen outside the direct relationship of Abram and Lot, Abram could see that strife coming between brethren. Um, coming into the church, if you will, coming into the community of believers, if you will. Um, and I'm just thinking with all that goes on in the world and inside the church, we cannot let the turmoil and evil in the world, even what the world may say and think about the real church, the big C church, the bride of Christ, if you will, into the church. The world, we, we really can't let the, the world into the church. 
I cannot, we cannot let the world dictate what peace within the church looks like, what love of the brethren looks like, even what hospitality looks like. John David's been talking about hospitality. We can't let the, the world tell us how we should behave, how we should appear before them even. Scripture tells us that. The Bible tells us that. And if the world does not like that, that's where I have to say, here I stand. I can do nothing else. Anyway, I see Abram already living out peace among the brethren, even up to denying himself the best pick of the land and letting Lot choose first, if you, if you remember that part of the story. Another New Testament principle, esteem others more highly than myself, set myself last and put others first. I don't want to wrap too much into Abram at this point, but I sure see some New Testament principles and actual instructions from Christ at play here. I'm beginning to see how Abraham is righteous, not because of what he does, but the faith in his heart. He looks beyond himself and his works to something greater yet to come. Continue with Abram. We see in chapter 14, Lot chose the... But you know, they, they said, you know, there's not enough room for all of us. And they got together and Abram said, choose, choose the land you want. Choose the land you want. Abram chose all the, quote, all the plain of Jordan that, is, that it was well, he saw all the plain of Jordan that it was well watered everywhere. Now that's the kind you want in the Middle East. So Lot got first choice and he chose the best land as I could see. He travels east and ends up, quote, pitching his tent as far as Sodom. He lives in Sodom. We all should know the story of how that all goes. We may be able to cover Lot in another lesson one day. That, that he's a whole other story. Uh, my reading shows that even though Abram gave Lot first choice, God actually had Canaan planned for Abram all along. Similar to Acts 126, where the, apostle, where the apostles cast lots to see which of two men would replace Judas. Remember when we covered that in Acts? Would replace Judas. It sounds like pure chance if you read just verse 26 in Acts. But looking at verse 24, we read the confidence the apostles had in that choice was not theirs but God's, where they prayed in verse 24. Before they cast lots in 36, they prayed in verse, four, verse 24. And they prayed and said, You, O Lord, know, who know the hearts of all, show which of these two men you have chosen. And yet they basically, it became a roll of the dice. But they had confidence that no matter what the dice turns up, it will, it will end on the very man God has for us to, to name as, don't you hate that? Well, I do, but anyway. Anyway, so it's showing we have chosen. We got pretty in-depth on this one out of Friday Midday Study. There is no chance with God is what I'm saying. So when, when, so when uh, Abram tells Lot, you pick anything you want and I'll take second choice. There, there was not a chance, there, there was no chance that Lot would have chosen Canaan, is what I'm saying. He chose the best, but God's plan was for, for Abram to go to Canaan anyway. There is no chance with God. He will direct even the casting of Lot's, the dice to go his way. It's just another aspect of his total omnipotence. Anyway, I can read the rest in, you can read the rest in chapter 13, as God promised Abram all the land his eye could see. Not only that, God goes on to tell him his descendants will be as the dust of the earth, such as they cannot be numbered. Abram believed God and once again just moved his tent and went, headed toward Canaan, as we read in 1318. This belief of Abram, this faith in what God has and is telling him and what is what makes Abram righteous. We read all this and we're not even to the story of Abraham and Isaac yet, the one we're probably most familiar with, 
I'm seeing how Paul and the New Testament writers could boldly state that this man Abraham, with all his sins, his shortcomings, and his transgressions, was right with God. Because his works earn him nothing, they are the outworking of his belief. You can see Romans again, Romans 4, 3, and Galatians 13, 6 through 9. In Genesis 14, we read about Lot getting captured and Abram going to his rescue. Note in Genesis 14, 13 that Abram is first called a Hebrew. You wonder, gee, I, 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 had, I had read this before, but it kind of came back to me. When you read, where did the, the name Hebrew come from? Well, this is the first time Abram is actually called a Hebrew. This is not a title or a name as such, but more of an ethic, an ethnic appellation. Um, kind of like calling me a southerner. Um, and, that, and that would be true, but it's only a partial description of me. So to call Abram a, a Abraham a, a Hebrew was only a partial description of him. His term Hebrew is probably a play or identifier of Eber, one of Abraham's great, 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 great grandfathers from several uh, generations back. You can look in uh, Genesis 11, 10 through 26. So here, Abraham is called a Hebrew, and from here we see the initialization of the Jews as a distinct group, the beginning of the Jewish race, if you will. And remember, this is important because as you fast forward to Romans, Paul is, Paul is separating the Jews and saying, you Jews are thinking this way, okay? Don't, 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 don't bring your circumcision and think that's going to get you. Don't bring your good works and think, don't, give, don't bring the law and your obedience to it and think that's going to get you anywhere. Okay? Though not a race, there is only one race according to creation order, but of ethnicity, culture, and subculture, we have the Jews. Today, Jews, at least the ones that know anything about their race and culture, would plant their flag here as the beginning of their, as the begin, as their beginning with their, quote, father Abraham as their father. You can do a research of our father Abraham just see how many times in the New Testament the Jewish religious leaders hearken back to their ancestry and lineage, back to we are of our father Abraham which makes them special in some way and based on their ethnicity and lineage alone. They are right. They think they are right with God just based on who they are. Paul goes right to the heart of this, as Andy's pointed out more than once in Romans 3, 9. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Again, in 3.29, or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. And Paul begins to nail down this argument that righteousness comes by who, and that does not come by who you are and what you do, ancestry and obedience to the law. But in Romans 4.13, Paul lets us know God's view of this. For the, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. That's how the Bible tells us that Abraham believed God, his faith made him righteous. Okay, well, I don't know what time we're supposed to stop, but any good, good time as any? Andy? Okay. Um, all right, Andy has told me to stop, so uh, <laughs> for my request. Any, any questions or points? I hope you, I, I, I think you're following it, following it here. We're, we're going to go finish it up next week. Um, I hope. Next week, you don't want to miss it. We're going to keep going. I say you don't want to miss it and some of you won't be here. But anyway, I'm also going to include something called neurotheology. Ever heard of that? Anybody ever heard of neurotheology? Hot dog something. Another something new. And we'll cover the world's oldest known song, Ryan. 
What's that? I say, we're, I'm, I'm going to also try to cover the world's oldest known song. Okay, so you may wonder, what in the world did neurotheology have to do and the world's oldest known song have to Abraham's righteousness? Well, I think it'll help you better understand kind of what Abraham came out of when we cover that. Okay, um, although prayer is not a magic wand that we wave and hope the rest of the day goes well, I will close uh, in prayer. Asking the Lord to bless the, 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 our worship service coming up. Heavenly Father, you are so very, very gracious. And for those of believers, for those of us that believe, Father, um, without your word, we would remain in a lost condition. It is the word that tells us the truth. It is the word that leads us unto salvation. Left to ourselves, we would just make stuff up, Lord, and think, well, I'm, I'm not all that bad. And it's been said many times, we would compare ourselves to other people, and uh, that's a very low standard. Your bar is high, and we can't make it. Uh, Abraham counted as righteous, and yet he could not make it. He was a sinful man, the same as I am. We thank you for your word, Father. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who willingly left his throne in glory, humbled himself as a man, lived a perfect, sinless life, and died on the cross, was buried, rose again, ascended, and is today at the right hand of the Father, interceding on my behalf, keeping my ledger in balance so that my sin is not imputed to me. He takes it upon himself. And the Father sees me as righteous because Christ's righteousness is imputed to me. Thank you for that, Heavenly Father. I don't understand it. I can barely explain it, but I believe it to be true. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.